as we carry on from last week into Exodus chapter 2. Our attention this morning will be upon Exodus 2 verses 1 through 10, but I would like to begin reading at verse uh, chapter 1 verse 22 through to chapter 2 verse 10. We'll read this once together as it's both our, both our reading and our text. And after we've heard from God's word, we'll sing in response Psalm 18, stanzas 1 and 6. Exodus 1, verse 22, where the word of God speaks to us as follows. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. As I mentioned earlier, the text for the sermon of this morning is taken from the passage we read together in Exodus chapter 2. And after we've heard from God's word, we'll sing in response to the ministry of the gospel from Psalm 2, stanzas 1, 2, and 4. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's a fact of history that evil continually lusts for more. We need only recall the gradual developments in Nazi Germany. First, it was hate propaganda against the Jews. Then they were banned from certain occupations. Then there were the ghettos, the labor camps, and finally Auschwitz and the so-called final solution, where Jews were either gassed or starved at the German concentration camp. To be sure, 
That is a very large-scale example of the growth of evil, of the appetite evil has for more. But the, that basic pattern can also be seen roughly 3,000 years earlier. It sounds strangely, strangely like what we found in Exodus chapter 1. Pharaoh made several attempts to annihilate the Israelites. First, he beat them into submission with the rod of slavery. That didn't really work. We saw last week the Lord blessed the Israelites so that they filled up the land. Pharaoh's plan B was to have the midwives kill the Hebrew baby boys in secret, which didn't really work either. The Lord was still at work. He caused the midwives to fear him, and he let the boys live. Israel continued to grow. And that's what led Pharaoh to plan C. Chapter 1, verse 22. Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. With this final solution, Pharaoh's lust for evil was out in the open. He wouldn't stop until all of Egypt was involved in his crimes against humanity. Here we find a final outburst of evil, and it's directed against God's covenant people. It was meant to settle the Jewish question. Every baby boy of the Israelites was to be dumped in the Nile. A little different from Auschwitz, but the same principle applies. Evil is at its peak. Satan was looking for the upper hand against God and his people. And so everything that now takes place in our text happens in the light of Pharaoh's command at the end of chapter 1. And when we take it all together we find that our text is a picture, nevertheless, of the providence of God. Providence, that delightful way God directs circumstances to his people's own benefit. Israel, we understand, needed a deliverer. They needed rescue from Pharaoh, the ambassador of Satan himself. But God seems to work very, very slowly here. He doesn't take an adult deliverer. He starts at the very beginning with an infant. This was to be Israel's deliverer against the might of Pharaoh, against the army of Satan. The Holy Spirit has preserved our text for the church's comfort in our battle against sin and evil. So that we learn to know the God more and more who delivers his people from evil. And so I summarize our text for this morning as follows. In his delightful providence, God draws out his people's deliverer. And we see this providence of God in, first, the nativity of the deliverer, so the birth of the deliverer. Secondly, the preservation of the deliverer. Thirdly, the deliverer's name. First, we see the Lord God working in the birth of this deliverer. We, me- <clears throat> we mentioned already that Exodus 1 ends on a quite tense note. 
Pharaoh has now authorized all his people to uh, serve as deputies, and he decrees that every Hebrew boy is to be tossed in the Nile. So yes, on top of the back-breaking labor of the Israelites, Pharaoh adds one more thing to push them over the edge. The Nile was to become a watery grave for Israel baby boys. In that context then, who would want to have children? With that death promise of execution, you were courting death when you were thinking to have a child. So you may very well imagine the temptations that surrounded Israelite couples to avoid having children. To think that the Lord has placed this on our path, it must be a sign from Him that we can't have children at this time. Of course, if such an attitude prevailed, the line of the seed of the woman would have ended right there. The line of the Savior would have been interrupted and the seed of the serpent would have triumphed. That's what was at stake here in Exodus 2. The battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. So in that light, we look at verses 1 and 2. A man from the house of Levi went and took his wife as, a Levite, uh, as his wife, a Levite woman woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. We don't get any names at this point. We don't know the names of the child's parents. Even later, we aren't given the name of his sister either, or the name of the daughter of Pharaoh or her attendants. We don't read any names in this whole account, except the name of the child at the end of verse 10 which tends to make our passage in one respect quite ordinary, quite generic. Even God's name is absent. He's not there. But of course we saw in chapter 1 last week that the Lord was not passive when his people were being enslaved by Pharaoh. He granted them exceptional growth. And so here as baby boys were being murdered, God was busy. He was working to save them, to redeem them. He's not mentioned, but he's there. His response to Pharaoh's edict is to raise up one of those Hebrew boys to deliver his people. And that's what happens in these first verses. It's not just the people of Israel as a whole who are in God's hand, but also, we would say, the individual person as well. At this stage in the story, this Hebrew boy was just one example of the fact that elsewhere among the Hebrews, there were little boys being born. And that Pharaoh's command was being frustrated by the Lord's care for the individual. Well, sure, we can't think that this was the situation in every case. But in more cases than just this Hebrew baby, the Lord's gracious power was proving itself against the enemy. But our passage today tells us about this anonymous baby and his birth, his nativity, 
And if you and I were reading this passage for the very first time, the very mention of the birth of a son in verse 2 might send chills up our spine because we've just read what Pharaoh ordered for, for such male babies. This baby need only cry a little too loudly. And at the wrong time, that would be the end of him. Those Egyptians were keeping their eyes and their ears peeled. Pharaoh's police were ripping baby, uh, busy ripping infant sons out of the Israelites' desperate hands. All it could take was that cry too loud, and then also this baby's parents would have to watch in helpless grief as their little boy was being discarded into the Nile. But we have to see this child's nativity as part of the providence of the Lord. God is busy at work, and we know that from all of Scripture, but I think this passage itself says as much to us, though not in as many words. There's that little detail you notice in the second half of verse 2. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. He was a fine child. That phrase, interestingly enough, is an echo of the recurring phrase we run across in Genesis chapter 1, where God saw that his creation was good, beautiful. So clearly here, the infant's parents saw something special in their son, which is repeated for you and me in the New Testament. Stephen says in Acts 7 verse 20 that at that time Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And Hebrews 11 verse 23 says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So our text is calling attention to Moses' birth as a reminder of God's creative power. He formed and fashioned that child in his mother's womb and safely delivered him into the world. And his mother looked upon her child and saw that he was good. She received him with a joy similar to the joy of God when he looked upon his own creation. So, Moses' parents viewed him as beautiful, not strictly in the cute and adorable sense. Every parent thinks that of their newborn. No, by faith, his parents saw him as a gift entrusted to them by God. Not necessarily as a deliverer, they couldn't know that yet. But by faith, they saw something special about him. That God was at work. That's why his mother was so determined in the end to save him. Yes, they were determined by faith to live in God's promise to provide, to, to believe in God's promise to provide, even in the context of oppression. <clears throat> if they had... <clears throat> humanly speaking, decided to keep the womb closed, <clears throat> they would have denied God's holy word. Israel's deliverer still had to come, <clears throat> and to stand in the way of that would have been an act of unbelief. 
church has to grow. And the Lord blesses the members of his church who live by faith in, in him. That was Moses' parents. Asking for a child and then raising up a child is always an act of faith. God blessed them with a son, which under the circumstances would have caused typically great anxiety. But in his providential care, having already granted a child, God also confirms their faith, strengthens their faith by a special sign at this baby's birth. He was a beautiful child, well-pleasing to God. A gift. God used this fact as an extra incentive for Moses' parents, you might say, to live by faith. So they hid him for three months. Well, how instructive for us. Yes, how comforting this is already. The true deliverer, the true savior has come. Long after that exodus, Israelites were still waiting for another Savior to be born, of whom Moses was only a shadow. That child was born in Bethlehem. He was a child, Hebrews 3, verse 3 says, worthy of more glory than Moses. He was also no ordinary child. He was the Son of God. This good, this beautiful child, well-pleasing to God, was born in history, human history in the days when Caesar Augustus sent out a decree that all the world should be taxed. Our deliverer has come. Because of the movement of scripture, because of this fact, we may have children now, according to God's providence. By faith in God's promise, shown to us in the gift of God's only Son, we have evidence in our text, but also in the birth of Christ, that God succeeded in spite of Pharaoh's ruthless regime. God's program went forward, and it will continue. We have that promise because our God is faithful. He's consistent He provides continually, delightfully for his children who live by faith in his promises. That's why with confidence we can have children. God will not change, but will be the same to us and to our children. God's deliverer was sent. He came. And because we have been delivered we can count on God's providence to continue in our families should we live by faith. God will provide. God will preserve. Which is our second point, the preservation of this deliverer. The child is healthy and he's growing well. To the point where only after three months his parents are no longer able to hide him. They had managed to keep the baby secret, undetected. And yet, as we can well imagine, that baby wasn't always quiet. Baby's lungs develop. And so his parents feared that the more active he became, the more likely he was to be discovered. 
His mom goes to work. She weaves and waterproofs a papyrus basket for him. Now, the Hebrew word here for basket is literally ark. It's the word used in scripture elsewhere only in the story of Noah in Genesis 6 through 9. God used the ark to save Noah and his family from the flood. Now, this is not a mere coincidence that the author here uses the same word. He's calling attention to God's saving work by using this word. This is a hint that God, in his providence, might save Moses much the same way he saved Noah. In both instances, people are saved from death by drowning in order to bring a new, a fresh beginning for God's people. But that seems to be God's purpose here. Why did Moses' mother carefully, lovingly craft a basket for him, put, it, put him in it, and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile? Some say she was getting fairly desperate here. She didn't want his infant cries to be heard. So she put him into a little ark and hid him in the reeds, hoping everything would be fine. But that seems rather unlikely. She wouldn't think much of her child to do it for that reason, because he would simply float down the river and die somewhere. Now, what seems more likely is that this was an act of faith. How else could she gently lay her baby down, tuck away her very own heart, and let him go? She received her son as a gift from the Lord, and now she was turning him back over to the Lord in faith. For she even sends her own daughter, his sister, along to see what would happen, we read in verse 4. She likely knew the time and the place where Pharaoh's daughter bathed. Why would she send her daughter to watch if she expected her little baby to be killed? If it seemed like she was abandoning him, it was an abandoning only to save him. In verses 5 and 6, we encounter the most tense part of the narrative. Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe in the Nile, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. They, you might say, want to give her a bit of privacy. And then she sees that basket among the reeds. She sends her slave girl to get it. And then in verse 6, the author seems to slow things right down. You and I get every last detail. When she opened it, She saw the child, and behold, the child was crying. Her reaction? She has two options. Dump him or spare his life. But we read she took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Her curiosity is turned into compassion the moment she peeks into that basket. And she thereby defies Father's orders. But we see again the providence of the Lord. The baby's mother made the basket as safe as she could, 
But ultimately, it was God who chose to preserve that cargo of redemption. God was right there working out his plan. And he was doing it in the Nile of all places. Yes, instead of the ark being found by Pharaoh's boats of war that shuttled back and forth on the Nile, the Pharaoh's daughter finds him and saves him. She knew he was a Hebrew precisely because he was in the Nile, abandoned, just like so many other Hebrew baby boys who may have been floating dead. Embedded in our text is the hand of God turning events to his own purposes. Pharaoh's plan of genocide included the preservation of girls, of daughters. Perhaps he envisioned that by sparing the Israelite girls, they would have grown up and had no choice but to marry the Egyptian men, increasing the people of Pharaoh. But in the end, it was the daughters who were his downfall. Pharaoh's own daughter frustrates Pharaoh's decree. She saves this boy from death. And she ends up giving the baby back to his mother to nurse him. God preserves the child. And the way he does it will probably make you laugh. But that's because God is laughing. There is divine humor here. God's plan will come to pass through women. Moses' own mother gets, even gets to be the nurse in the end. And she gets a regular government check for providing the one-on-one care for her own child. And the child is raised under powerful state protection that no one could challenge. Heaven is laughing. Who else but sovereign God could organize and orchestrate such things? We see divine fingerprints all over this text. <clears throat> because this baby was to be the child, or was the child God had appointed to deliver his people from bondage. This is precisely why you and I need the Lord to be our God and Savior. For his protection, his preservation, and redemption of us, the church. No, we can certainly imagine that not all those Israelite parents had such a happy ending story to tell. Many would have had their baby boys torn away from them. God's providence is marvelous. And mysterious. The circumstances surrounding our text are quite similar actually to what's recorded for us in Matthew 2. There our Savior enjoys a very similar experience. Egypt turns out to be a safe haven for him and for his family. But for his fellow Israelites born in Bethlehem, same could not be said. Herod ordered his thugs to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old and under. So God didn't save every Bethlehem toddler, but the Savior was saved. So while our text emphasizes the wonder of God's providence, it also at the same time makes us think of the aches 
of God's people. God doesn't always keep the church from all her fears. But in his providence, he preserves her from being snuffed out. The promise of our text is that God will always have a people to serve him on this earth. And there is no tyrant who can stop him. God has his ways, his precious, delightful ways of making sure of that. Well, brothers and sisters, do you believe this? Do you believe that God is doing what is best for his people? That he is really busy with the preservation and the rescue of his people? Are you able to look at your own life and see how God has preserved you? We live in a society that more and more despises Christianity, especially the church. Satan is making great gains, it seems, trying to break down the church in an ever-crafty way. But the God of Exodus 2 is the God of today as well. That God who watched from his throne in heaven as the basket holding that Hebrew baby floated in the river is the same one who rules today. The same God is directing events, ensuring the preservation of the church. And Psalm 2, we'll sing in a few moments, he is laughing at Satan's attempts on the church because he stands victorious as the ruler, as the king of kings for the sake of the church, for our deliverance. No enemy can stop him. And so we come to our final point where we consider that the Lord's providence is there in the naming of the Deliverer. Our text concludes in verse 10. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. God had preserved the one he had chosen to be, the Deliverer of his people, And the day comes when his mom has to say farewell to him as he goes to live off in the palace. He's a young boy now, fully weaned from his mother, and now he's adopted into Pharaoh's household. You might say that the hopes of his parents were dashed. This could have been the deliverer of our people, but now he's out of our reach. There's not much hope at this point, is there? Well, maybe not, until one day they find out that he was named Moses. In Egyptian, we're not, though we're not 100% sure, the name seems to mean child of the Nile. The boy's name for Pharaoh's daughter was to keep alive the fact that she found him in the Nile in the water. <clears throat> for she explains the name. I drew him out of the water. That was her badge, her defining moment. (coughs) But interestingly, the Hebrew meaning of the name Moses is different. There's a twist. The Hebrew name Moshe does not mean I drew him out. Rather, it means the one who draws out. (coughs) For the Israelites then, they could say something like this. 
You Egyptians called him child of the Nile. But in our language, that same name means one who draws out. What this all means then is that Moses from the Egyptians unwittingly is given a name when, which when you translate into Hebrew becomes the very prophecy of what was to become of him. Egypt drew him out of the water, but he will draw us out of Egypt through the water. Moses, it's clear, is a man of destiny. And this naming episode summarizes again for us how God's providence was at work. Moses' parents could know he was alive, that he wasn't lost. God's people have hope because God preserves his people by his delightful providence. The name Moses testified to that through and through. We may know that names in scripture more often have a significance. This case is no different. Moses would be the one to draw God's people out of slavery. Now what does that mean for us? Obviously, it doesn't mean that God will spare us from evil. We've already seen that our text doesn't really allow us to make that kind of conclusion Just because he preserved Moses doesn't mean he will spare us from struggles and harm. That's not the point. The point is, God is going to see to it that his people are preserved. This is the God we serve, the God we can then trust. If you haven't thought to yourself already, notice now, that the theme and points of this sermon could just as well apply to a sermon on the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He was born as a baby in Bethlehem, according to the promise of the angel. Preserved, we said, as an infant in Egypt, and given the name Jesus, because he would save his people from their sins. That, too, was a name of hope, not just for Israel, but for all who turn to God in faith and repentance. This child born in a manger was to be the deliverer of God's people, not from physical slavery, but from spiritual death and torment. As if the God of Exodus 2 could raise up a man named Moses to lead Israel out of Egypt, he could raise up a man named Jesus Christ to lead God's people from bondage to sin. And he did. And in Christ, the forgiveness of sins, the freedom from sin is found. Brothers and sisters, it's, it's no mystery, it's no secret that you and I need a deliverer. We need a God who is at work in our hearts all the time. If God didn't save Moses the way the Bible tells us he did, then how on earth can God save anybody at all? But he did. He saved us by the suffering and death and resurrection of our Savior. That boy grew up, became strong. He was filled with all sorts of wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. He lived a perfect life until he finally died an atoning death. And in that death, 
we find life, salvation. We find God's ultimate triumph over sin. Do you believe this, brothers and sisters? The salvation that God accomplishes in history becomes ours when we repent and believe and have faith. Faith that recognizes God's providence. Faith that knows that in all things God does work for the good of those who love him. Yes, down to the very last detail. Even such a detail as the weaving and the weatherproofing of a basket. God himself is working out salvation. So we are to trust God the way a mother long ago trusted him when she put her very heart in a basket and entrusted it to the God who saves. So let us praise the Lord for his delightful providence. From beginning to end, our salvation belongs to God. No doubt about it. Amen.